Welcome to What's Important Now, making time for what matters most with Eva Medelec. If you're struggling to stay ahead of your daily life challenges, you will want to listen close as Eva and her guests will help you address the most important priorities first. Now, here's your host, Eva Medelec. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's show. I'm Eva Medelec, and my guest today is Ray Scott. Now, Philly native John Raymond, or Ray Scott, as he's known, was chosen as the fourth pick in the 1961 NBA draft by the Detroit Pistons. He spent six years with the Pistons as a standout rebounder and deadly shooter from the perimeter, and another five years playing for the Baltimore Bullets and the Virginia Squires. Later, he was named NBA Coach of the Year the first African-American to win the coveted award. And from 1976 to 1979, Mr. Scott was men's basketball head coach at Eastern Michigan University. Now he's here today to talk about his very first book, The NBA in Black and White, the memoir of a trailblazing NBA player and coach. So welcome to the show. It's such an honor to have you on the show today and to meet you. You're a legend. (laughs) The honor is mine. I'm a kid from South Philly from a third floor walk up. I've been so blessed. Uh, I've married well. I have great kids. I live in a great area. So I'm just, I'm, I'm truly blessed. And then to have it rain upon me that I should write a book. I mean, this wow. is unbelievable to see your words and your thoughts on paper and share them with people. This is just a work from my soul. That's awesome. And, you know, my husband married well, too. So he has that in common with you. <laughs> <laughs> so I only read a part of your bio because, you know, we're just going to talk more about you and what inspired you and how you got started in basketball. I know Philly loves its basketball, among other things, but who inspired you early on to really take this to the pro level like you did? I like you saying among other things because we're a city of cheesesteaks and Italian hoagies. So yes, yes. (laughs) Of course, there's Rocky running up the steps, but uh, so many things, so many things. Philadelphia is so unique to me. Uh, first, I was, uh, I was blessed to be born near Frederick Douglass Hospital, and I'm very, very proud of that. When I was doing my research, it just came to me how special it was to be born, to be an African-American kid or a Negro of that time, born at Frederick Douglass Hospital, which is one block away from my home. Um, so those uh, unique things that we talk about and that we feel when we think of Philadelphia, uh, are there. It's kind of cast in, in all of this. Um, uh, in my love of Philadelphia, my love of basketball, because my mother, fortunately for her, after having me and my father left, we were just kind of two peas in a pod. And so the beautiful thing about being in Philadelphia is she met this wonderful man and he adopted me. And I didn't, I mean, I'm four years old. What do I know? I just know I'm a kid that now has a new dad. And uh, unfortunately, he left us when he was, when I was uh, uh, 
eight years old, four years later. And so there I am cast about in Philadelphia, who now becomes a latchkey kid. And as I, my life begins to turn, I, I'm an eight-year-old young kid with a two-year-old little brother and a mother that's going to work. And this wonderful lady on the second floor that became my aunt took care of my little brother and I and saw to us. And my mother had to go to work. You know, those days, you know, we didn't have what they call social programs. So there was no real rescue in Philadelphia uh, in the 1940s. So as I'm growing, I'm looking for something. I don't know what I'm looking for, but I go to a recreation center, which is right across the street. And there's this little brown object on the floor, and it's a basketball. And little did I know when I picked it up that it would be resolute in the rest of my life. So that's how I'm here with you. I was just a kid that loved the basketball in a recreation center, in a place in Philadelphia. And voila, here we are. As an octogenarian, here we are. Well, I'm sure it wasn't that simple. Right. <laughs> uh, the way you tell it, it was just, I just picked up a basketball and I became NBA coach of the year, oh. <laughs> years later. Who, you know, the reason why I'm asking is because coaches and mentors are so important in who we become in our lives, to have these role models in our lives. So you're talking the 1940s into the, the 1950s, I would imagine. And you know, who support, you know, it sounds like you had a wonderful mother, wonderful neighbors. It, ta it takes a village. And then that's yeah. what yeah. I'm sure the community was there making sure that you kept out of trouble. And they were probably the first to tell your mom if you were doing something you shouldn't have been doing. However, you know, what kept you going with basketball at, at such a love of the game, but also with, dare I say, a direction to really have this be part of who you become? Well, God saw to it that I was tall. There you go. How well, tall are you? Well, I'm 6'9 now. Uh, <laughs> I love how you said that. How tall were you then? <laughs> because as I began to grow, it was the auntie downstairs that be began to take note of that. My, you're tall. And uh, I remember, I mean, my first, when it, when it first impacted the community, uh, when I went to uh, high school in ninth grade, um, I was six foot three inches, 14 years old. And so I grew from that freshman year of high school to that sophomore year of high school, I grew from six three to six, six and a half. You know, imagine your parents looking at that with shoe sizes and clothing and all the things that you have to go through. So, when that occurred, and I went to six, six and a half, and I was kind of playing the understated part of basketball because, I, I mean, I didn't know whether I was really good, really bad, really exceptional, had talent. Now, that was not the day that we lived in. Uh, you, just, you just played. African-American kids uh, played basketball. We weren't part of a system that said, one day you're going to be a pro or one day you're going to be a college player or one day you're going to play in high school. You just played. We were just kids and we played. So um, I decided I wanted to transfer because I wasn't moving uh, in the Catholic school that I went to 
in South Philly, and I wanted to transfer to another school because my friends were at that school, and they had pretty girls. So I'm, you know, I wasn't uh, Ray Charles. I mean, I could figure out things pretty fast. I said, oh, I'm, I want to go to this school, and so going to West Philadelphia High School, our largest school, and I didn't realize it at the time until I did my research, it was a white school. And, you know, I don't even know at that time I'd have made that type of choice, but I did. And I was fortunate to be at that school, but lo and behold, being six foot eight, eight inches tall at 16 years of age in the 11th grade, you would think, man, for a basketball player, this is a dream come true. And I have to tell you, you're wrong, because at the high school, the major rival of my high school, which was in the same neighborhood, was Overbrook High School. And they had a seven-foot guy by the name of Wilton Norman Chamberlain. Chamberlain. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. You were beat out. <laughs> I, was, I was never going to be what people thought I was going to be because I was six feet inches tall. You know, Wilt was always the catalyst of what went on with high school basketball in Philadelphia. And he made high school basketball front page. And he gave me a place uh, as a player, uh, playing against him, competing against him, because I was 16 and he was 18. And, you know, in high school, that's, that's a big distance. I mean, he, you know, so he was an 18-year-old, but he was, a, he was a wonderful guy. He's a good guy. Um, and I, I talk about that in the book, what, what an imposing character he was in Philadelphia in that age sphere. Because when you're that good and you're that tall, he doesn't last very long in the era of young kids. He is a man. He's an 18 and he's dealt with uh, as a man. And so I, I, I had that interesting perspective of seeing that happening. But he was a wonderful guy, uh, thank God. Um, he never sought to harm anyone. He uplifted people. Uh, and, and uh, you know, my, uh, another friend of mine had just passed, Bill Russell. And when I think of those guys, the, the, the colossal people that they are, we've been so blessed to have them. And it really helped grow the game of basketball in America, those two individuals. Yes. And my, my condolences for the, the loss of your friend, Bill Russell. I, I did read that. And I, you know, yeah, it, it's, it, it was like sad, sad to read, read about that as well. So how long, and I'm, I'm making an assumption here, have folks been after you to write a book? <laughs> I would say for the last, I think since I was about 50 years old. So Okay. So it's been a little over a little, yeah. couple of years. <laughs> yes. Thank you. You're <laughs> if your husband is lucky. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that, that, that's, a, uh, that's a good analogy. But what happens is people will say things to you like, man, what you just said or your thoughts there, that should be in a book. Well, the person that took up that cry was my bride of 40 years. And Jennifer said, you should write a book. And I was fought it, fought it, fought it, fought it for as long as a, as a husband can fight something before the wife wins. And <laughs> Cute. My, my co-author, Charlie Rosen, and I were on the phone. And we were, he wrote the book on Phil Jackson. 
when Phil was, he was a Nick and then a New York Knickerbocker. And then he uh, was a a very successful coach with the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan. So he he wrote a book and it's a great book. It's a great book. Um, But Charlie said, you've got the same thing in you. You could, I said, Charlie, nobody wants to read a book by Ray Scott. And he and I said, I'll prove it to you. We'll go out and try to find a, a publisher. And so when we went out and looked for publicists, the emails that came back were not, um, how do I want to say, complimentary. He said, nobody knows who this guy is. You know, I mean, he was the coach of the year. So what? Big deal. Nobody knows who he is. Now, if you had Julius Irving, something, Dr. J, hey, that's a great book. So I I took my little feelings home and I said, well, nobody's interested in me and that's it. Now I can go back to Jennifer and the girls because they think I'm great and that's that's good enough for me. But uh, Charlie stayed the course. We were having a conversation. Jennifer walks into the the room and Charlie's saying, you should be writing a book. And Jennifer said, that's what I've been telling him. From that point, Charlie said, I'm going to write something to a publisher at seven stories in New York and see what they think. And Charlie wrote to, to Dan, the publisher, and Dan wrote back and said, this is a great book. This is an idea. This is something that we need in our time. Somebody that looks at America with a parallel view. And I was looking at America as America, but America from the, from the position of growing up in the NBA at 22 years old. And I was looking at America from 1960 when John Fitzgerald Kennedy became president. That was, that was like unbelievable to me, a Catholic kid seeing someone elected who's Catholic. And it was like, oh, man, this is going to be good. This is, you know, and John Fitzgerald Kennedy said, I want my Negro brethren to be included in the future of America. So he there was about inclusion as opposed to exclusion. Well, as a 22-year-old kid that was a product of University of Portland and a product of uh, South Catholic and West Philly, I was like, this is so great. So I was very pleased and happy that Charlie began to push those buttons of, look, let's look at the world in two ways, basketball player, but a citizen growing up in America. Well, that's and- an interesting perspective. And so the book's title Tell me about the significance of that title to you. It's my view in black and white. I saw the black and white of the United States of America and how it existed. And I was also seeing the black and white of a segregated league for three years from 1947 until 1950 before they got African-American players, Earl Lloyd, Sweetwater Clifton, and Chuck Cooper, uh, which was... uh, 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 Earl went to Washington, to D.C. Chuck Cooper went to the Boston Celtics. Sweetwater Clifton went to the New York Knicks. And so that was the first time in professional basketball that you saw African-Americans on the floor in America. Wow. Representative of the NBA. Now, the NBA was not a huge community. It was only eight teams. But the thing with those guys is that they brought that presence that we didn't have for our African-American kids. 
Because remember, as kids, we look up to guys that are athletic and can do things that we play doing. And so to have that example, wow, it just meant everything. And to combine that in the crescendo of John Fitzgerald Kennedy saying where we belong in history. Now, he never made it really happen because unfortunately he was assassinated. And then there's Dr. King and there's Malcolm X and there's Megan Evers and there's Rosa Parks. There's these historians for us. And at that time, we'd only have two or three African-Americans on a team. But those were the conversations that we would have with each other in the locker room. So that began to happen in the tumultuous 1960s. And that's a piece I'd like to really expound on because we get into music and clothing and, you know, James Brown say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud and, and Richie Havens with all of this great music. So uh, things began to change. And I'll tell you. Why don't we do this? We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to go more into talking about racism in the NBA and kind of compare the NBA with some other, you know, other leagues like Major League Baseball and the NFL. I mean, that was significant time in the 60s for um, African-Americans in a lot of sports. And that was also the time that um, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, you know, took his stand uh, against the Vietnam War and what it cost him. So stay with us, everyone. We are going to be right back after this short break. What's stopping you from having more money, time, energy, and fun? Learn how to break through where you stop so that you can have greater success, better health, and happier relationships. Take this free quiz to identify what's stopping your success and learn exactly what you can do about it. www.evamedelec.com slash quiz. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Having higher levels of energy is something you choose and condition, not something you have. Exhaustion has been a challenge for over two years now. This is the year you can choose to change. Here are five things you can start doing today to reverse the burnout, stress, and overwhelm that is keeping you from living a life full of good health and happy relationships. www.evamedelec.com slash reverse burnout. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are listening to What's Important Now, making time for what matters most with host Eva Medelec. Have a question for Eva or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5795. That's 866-472-5795. Now back to the show. Here again is Eva Medelec. 
Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Ray Scott, the author of The NBA in Black and White, the memoir of a trailblazing NBA player and coach. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the racism because you played in the heart of it, you know, in the, the 60s and the 70s. And, you know, not that it's not still around, but it was really, really the height of the civil rights movement, if you will. Now, how was, how was your experience, because you were a player during that time, like you played from what, 61 until what year? Remind me. 72. Okay. So they, we had the Vietnam war going on. We had the civil rights movement. We had so many things where the world was just screaming um, for change and people were screaming resistant to change. So so many things going on. So in the NBA, what was it like for you as a player during those times? Oh man, that's, that's, that's a good question because it requires thinking back to what laid the basis for me coming into the NBA. And okay. so the story that I have to tell there, and I cover it in the book, I do it twice, is Emmett Till. There mm-hmm. was this murder in Mississippi of this young man that allegedly whistled at a white woman. And he was summarily, I, people say murdered, killed. It was so beyond any description you could give of what these people did to a 14-year-old child. They're finally, they finally made a movie about it. Yes, they did. It's yes. a, a Netflix. I, I don't know if I have the heart to watch it, but anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Continue. No, no, it's a tough watch. I, yes, I would recommend it because of the factual component of the uh, of how it is addressed with respect yeah. to justice. So I would recommend it. Um, but when that happened, importantly for me as a basketball player, I was becoming prominent in basketball. I was becoming an all-city player. So at 16, this young man is murdered. And that just sticks in my mind because for African-Americans, we had two major magazines at that time. One was Jet Magazine, and the other was Ebony. Ebony. Jet Magazine committed to following this whole case with a writer by the name of Simeon Booker that he was going to follow it as it came to fruition and hopefully came to justice. So I was growing up in that, and I was faithfully getting my 15 cents a week to get my Jet Magazine. And I would read the accounting of what was transpiring with respect to this case. So that was at 16. That moment in time, that massacre of this young man never left my consciousness. So when we talked about Medgar Evers in the early 60s, and then we began to talk about the guy coming out of the 50s was this looming leader, which was Martin Luther King, the Reverend Martin Luther King. And then we began to talk about Malcolm X, the man who was opening mosques across America for the, and at that time, it was called 
the uh, black Muslims. But I, I, little did I know that a Muslim is a Muslim is a Muslim. So, but at any rate, though coming into our consciousness was all of these things. And as I reached the age of 22, and I'm drafted by the Detroit Pistons, and I come to Detroit, and I go home with a two-year contract, and, and readers love this, I go home with a two-year contract for $25,000. And of that $25,000 contract, $1,000 of it was a bonus. Now imagine going back to South Philly with $1,000 in your pocket. And this was not just throwaway money. This was money that bought clothing. It bought a brand new car, a brand new car. And all of these wonderful things began to happen in my life. So remember, I'm seeing the world from the perspective of a successful Negro. I made it. I'm in the big leagues. And what does that really mean? What does that entail? And so as I heard uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy speaking and Dr. King speaking and Malcolm X speaking, I'm wondering where I fit in this world as a basketball player and as a human being. And so dealing with the issues, of course, of racism, which were always prevalent, I'm in all of these major cities. I'm in St. Louis. I'm in Los Angeles, New York. Uh, at that time, Philadelphia, Syracuse, Boston. And so I'm like in wonder but forming opinions in my own mind about these places that I am, that places that I'm traveling. And then I became a voracious book reader. So now I'm reading uh, Richard Wright and James Baldwin. And, uh, and my favorite was, for whatever reason, forgive me, but my favorite writer was Ernest Hemingway because he wrote a, a, a piece called a farewell to arms. And so I went to see the movie when I was in uh, Seattle, Washington. And when I saw this movie and I saw Rock Hudson act this part, and when he lost his wife and his child, and I don't, uh, I'm I know I have to qualify it, but this guy cried like a baby. I never saw a hero on a movie screen cry like that. And I was like, I was so touched that Hemingway could write like that. And so let me let me bring you back to the original question, because I, I think I think we're, we're running away just a little bit here. <laughs> and it's all very fascinating. But I want to give our listeners quite a bit for from what you experienced personally. I, I know you had your own thoughts and your metamorphosis that you were going through and wondering where you fit in as a successful Negro at the time basketball player. But what racism did you personally experience as a player? And we'll actually, you know, want to compare that to when you became a coach as well, because you were the first yeah. of, of, you know, there were a lot of firsts happening back yeah. there. And it wasn't easy to be one of the OGs, as they say. Yeah. Um, I, I think because racism is systemic, uh, for me, uh, because I again, it all, it all involves stories that it, they just pop back from the book, but it involves me seeing that world of uh, the '60s changing from the world of the fix of the '50s, where the signs were there. 
That's what I mean about it's systemic. No one told me don't go in that bathroom. No one told me don't drink from that water fountain. No one told me you can't eat in that restaurant. They were, there were signs, and it was a system of racism. It wasn't like I encountered individual race. People didn't even look at me. They didn't even care. I'm, I was an African-American man or a Negro, so I knew my place. And, in and was it that way in the league? Like when you played and in the locker rooms, mm-hmm. were you, did you have to separate, you know, depending upon where you were playing or what city you were playing? No, no. It was, it was just as subtle and systemic in the league. That was what I was trying to point out, that the world that we existed in, and for me at 22 years old, was systemic racism. It wasn't... Uh, Uh, the racism of the old South. I wasn't going to get lashed if I spoke up for myself. I wasn't going to be put in jail if I crossed the street without asking permission. No, this this racism was much more subtle. Uh, In the NBA, it was just as subtle. Uh, And I, I, I have a tendency in my mind to connect the thoughts that answer the questions and sometimes not directly answer the question, but I, I, I remember my first year, second year, in my first year, my uniform number was 22. And this, this is in my book, and I spell it out when you're at, with the question that you're asking. It's 22. I, I have a good year. I go home to Philadelphia. I come back, and, I'm, and I, we're doing our practice, and now they said we're going to shoot you in your uniforms. We're gonna, the photographer's going to shoot you in your uniforms. And again, this is a, just a subtle happening. And I remember walking over to, to the bench to get my uniform. And with, it was Ray Scott, and my uniform was 12. And I said, excuse me, uh, uh, Mr. Maskin, my uniform number is 22. And he said to me, no, we gave that number to Dave DeBusher because in college, his number was 22. He's our number one draft pick. He's now pitching. He's not here. He's pitching for the Chicago White Sox, and his number there is 22. So we gave Dave number 22. And I said, so you took my number without asking me, without even informing me, and you gave it to someone else. And he said yes, and he walked away. So that I, I leave the question up to the listeners. Do you think that was racism? Do you think that follows that uh, uh, system or that format of saying, we don't have to tell you what's going on. You know, this is the way it works because this is the system. And how many other Negroes or African-Americans, if you will, Mm -hmm. played in your, on your team, I'll just say not even in the league at that time. Three, Walter mm-hmm. Dukes, Willie Jones, and myself. Okay. Uh, there was another player there that was African-American, but he was cut. Okay. So there were three. And the, the rule was subtly, again, systemic, and that's what I always point to. They, they don't – we think of, again, the in-your-face stuff. But I clearly, as a 22-year-old man in America, I'm like, no – it's, it's, it's much more subtle than that in the North. It's much more subtle than that in football. It's much more subtle. You know, the only place I saw in America where the subtlety really disappeared 
was in baseball with Jackie Robinson in 1947. When Jackie came into the league, they were blatant. They were blatant in their in, in the racism, and that's what you're speaking to. But for me, for me as a kid, it was like all of the subtleties of the North. Well, the subtleties are the mosquito bites that yes. just build up and build up and build up. You know, the work I, I do some work in the DEI and I and I wrote a book called The Intimacy of Race, and it's dedicated to my dad, who actually was one of a few African Americans on the Patterson Police Department, and he joined in 1960, <laughs> the year that I was born, and he would tell me stories. There was blatant racism for him. None of the white cops would ride in the squad car with him mm -hmm. because he was black. So he had to ride the motorcycle and was taunted. But what impressed me about my dad was in 1968, in um, March, the end of March of 1968, Dr. King came to Patterson, New Jersey. And all of a sudden, my dad and another African-American cop were taken off of uniform motorcycle, put in plain clothes to guard Dr. King. And this was a week before his assassination. And he couldn't understand why. All of a sudden, he was guarding Dr. King. And then he found out that because Dr. King had these death threats, that they didn't want to put any white cops in harm's way. So the subtleties build, build up, you know, they're there, there's the blatant and there's the subtle, but it's all, it all hurts. You know, we see it as people of color more than people who have not experienced it personally because of their skin color, see it. Mm -hmm. And it's subtle because it's not blatant, but it's honestly, I feel as a, as an African-American, as a person of color, it is blatant. Mm -hmm. You know, the silence is loud. <laughs> the silence is deafening, if you will. Yeah. And um, so it's interesting how in your book, I'm sure, you know, people may not see what you felt. Mm -hmm. see what you noticed, see what you experienced, because it wasn't blatant. Right. But it still felt and felt hard. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And, and, and in the, that's in the world we live in. That's our world. And uh, how do we navigate that world? Um, I remember sometimes my feelings would just be hurt by something very subtle, that I would read uh, and I would want to talk about it in the locker room. For instance, Miles Davis was beaten outside of the, uh, what's the famous jazz club in New York? I can't think of it. Uh, the Blue a, Note? Was it the Blue Note? Yeah, the famous one. Birdland. Blue Note was, Birdland. oh, okay. Birdland. And he's outside of Birdland having a smoke. And he happened to talk to this attractive white woman, I guess. I'm not there. So I'm, this is secondhand. She leaves. He's standing there still smoking his cigarette. And the police officer walks over and says, what are you doing? He says, I'm smoking my cigarette. And he says, well, you better 
you better get out of here or put that cigarette out. He said, I don't have to do that. I don't have to get out of here. I'm appearing in this club. There's my picture right there on the wall. And the police officer said, are you arguing with me? And he proceeds to beat him up and arrest him. And I, and I, when we're talking about the, the subtleties, there are certain things that trigger those actions in the people that have dominance over you. And Miles Davis happened to, to pull one of those triggers, I think. And so he was beaten to a pulp, arrested. He couldn't play his next set. <laughs> you know, it's just amazing. He didn't play it. You went to see Miles Davis, this great musician, and they said, well, Mr. Mr. Davis is no longer going to appear. He's been arrested. Oh, what did he do? He was standing outside smoking a cigarette. And so those are the types of things that occur in our history when I speak of uh, subtleties. That is not a subtlety. That's no. something that triggered a behavior, and, and it's akin to me. Well, that's a power move, of, too. Of, of, yes, of, of yeah. Till, though. Like I, Emmett Till triggered a behavior. Mm. This is not how they acted every day. They just they, they, they lynched us every day. But they didn't just beat us and pound us and, and a child. So as I wanted to like sit and talk about those things, what what happened? What, here we are in a Well, six- you know, Billie Holiday got in trouble for even writing a song about it. They practically oh. killed her. But oh. this is fascinating. We're going to take another little short break, Ray. Um, let's talk about some of your favorite memories when you were playing and maybe some of you are not so favorite too. So when we come back and we'll, you know, yes, it was a, it was a rough time that you were playing, but I'm sure like all of us, we had the best of times and the worst of times at times. So we'll be right back after these short messages, everyone. Having higher levels of energy is something you choose and condition, not something you have. Exhaustion has been a challenge for over two years now. This is the year you can choose to change. Here are five things you can start doing today to reverse the burnout, stress, and overwhelm that is keeping you from living a life full of good health and happy relationships. www.evamedelec.com slash reverse burnout. If you're an influencer, you don't follow the trends, you set them. Voice America influencers are involved in creating change in personal and professional lives, collaborating and driving value to make our lives better. We have world-renowned thought leaders, speakers, authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and some of the most influential voices today. Listen in today to what they have to say. Engage in the conversation. The Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. Answer the call. What's stopping you from having more money, time, energy, and fun? Learn how to break through where you stop so that you can have greater success, better health, and happier relationships. Take this free quiz to identify what's stopping your success and learn exactly what you can do about it. www.evamedelec.com slash quiz. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. 
You are listening to What's Important Now, making time for what matters most with host Eva Medelec. Have a question for Eva or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5795. That's 866-472-5795. Now back to the show. Here again is Eva Medelec. All right, everybody. We are back in a very, very interesting conversation with Ray Scott about his memoir, The NBA in Black and White. So we just got off talking about some of the subtle and not so subtle racism that was happening during the time that you were a player. And I'm sure during the time that you were a coach as well. Tell me some of the favorite memories from your years playing professional basketball. Um, I, I think that my memories are, oh, they come from that personal piece of, how do I want to say, when I, when I became a Piston uh, in 1961, um, I thought because I was a player coming from scoring a lot of points, that that was going to be my role in the NBA. Surprise, surprise. The Detroit Pistons had three players, Bailey Howell, Don Olin, Gene Chu. They averaged about 20 points a game or about 60 points or about 80% of our offense because you average about 100 points in the NBA. So 60 points, and then they would, I mean, night in and night out, they would be the offense rode through these gentlemen. Well, here comes this elongated kid from Philadelphia that thinks he and who they don't know in Detroit. You know, I'm I'm one of the few. I went to a town where no one knew me. I was not uh, a highly represented All American, so one no one knew who I was. So the, the I thought for a long time my name was Who's Ray Scott, because that's what people would say. Who's Ray Scott? <laughs> All right, we could do Abbott and Costello on that one. <laughs> and I was like, but at any rate. Um, I remember my assistant coach, chief scout, and mentor and best friend, Earl Lloyd, coming to me. And he was like the first African-American to play in the NBA. He was the first African-American to be a chief scout. And he was the, one of the first African-Americans to be an assistant coach. And he pulled me. So I think he's knowledgeable. And he pulls me to the side. And he said, you're not going to get to play for us until you figure out what your role is. Now, generally, coaches told you what your role was. That's not the way it was done in those days. You have to figure it out. We're going to put you on the floor. We're going to give you a certain amount of minutes. And lo and behold, only God in heaven knows how this happened. But I figured it out. And I said, I'm going to have to become a defensive player, and I'm going to have to become a rebounder. I've got to get the ball. I've got to get possessions for my team and that could make me valuable because we want to have value so that's what i did i completely changed in my first year i became an everyday player and i started for the next eight years and there you go but a brother came and whispered in my ear and he didn't like i said he didn't give me directions but he gave me a direction well that's what a good i know he was a player 
but that's what a good coach, mentor, role model does. They don't tell you what to do. Yes. Uh, they don't tell you what to think. They teach you how to think. And so you got permission at that point on yeah. how to think about what your role would be so that you could bring value to that team. That's a beautiful lesson right there. Yeah. Now let's go into some of your, well, what you enjoyed most when you were coaching. A coaching, whew, that, that, you know, coaching, coaching is a shifting paradigm. It is just, it's over here one day. It's over, because you only get what comes into your locker room. Whatever mood, with a guy has a fight at home with his wife, an argument, and he comes to the locker room, you as the coach are in trouble. If a guy feels like I didn't have a good meal and I paid for this meal and it was a lousy meal and I got lousy service, you could be in for a hard time because people bring in the locker room who they are. You know, when, when, when you get undressed and you're bare and then you dress in this uniform, you have to find a meaning to being on that team and being with these guys. And that's why leaders are so important in a locker room because they kind of rally the troops, bring us together, the, the captain of the team. Um, so as a coach, uh, and, and I was 34 years old, I was a young guy. Uh, as a coach, I'm always looking for that guy to help me, to let me know he has my back, that he's going to rah, 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 Let's get it done. Let's help the coach. And that's very difficult. It's a very uh, tough existence. But I was blessed to have Dave Bing, who was my captain. And I don't know if you know about Dave Bing, but he, he, he became the mayor of the city of Detroit. That's the type of leadership qualities he had. And Dave Bing, because he backed me up, and Bob Lanier, who was a six foot 11 guy from St. Bonaventure, because he was so talented. So Bob's talent and Dave's brains made me coach of the year. And how did you, how did you get into a position of being the first African-American NBA uh, head coach? Well, I wasn't the first. The first was Bill Russell. The, the oh. first the second so was you, Adels, and the third was Earl Lloyd. So you were the first African-American NBA coach of the year. Yes. That's yes. what, okay. Thank you for the correction. Yes. All right. And I got So that. Bill, Bill paved the way for you. Rest his yes. rest soul. Yes. Rest his soul. Bill, uh, Bill was iconic. And Bill was simply made the coach because no one else could coach Bill. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So what about you? How did they take a chance of you? What, what leadership qualities did you have okay. that you had a chance to coach? And I researched that and I went back in conversation and in time. When I was a 22-year-old rookie and became a 23-year-old veteran, I had my exit meeting after my first year with the owner of the team, Mr. Fred Zollner. And I sat down with Mr. Zollner and he said, Ray, I'm really proud of the way you adjusted, going back to what uh, you said, Ava, uh, about um, adjusting in that first year to becoming a player that had consequence and value. He said, I'm really proud of you. And I said, Mr. Zollner, 
when I first sat with you across this desk a year ago, I came here, I was a boy. But when I went home after the year, I was a man. He never forgot that because he repeated it to me after he said, I'm letting Earl Lloyd go as my coach and Ray, you're going to be my coach. And I'm going like, me? I'm not even prepared. This is not even on my bucket list. I never wanted to coach. I wanted to work in industry. But he said, no, you're going to be my coach. And he said, remember when you told me you came here as a boy and you left as a man? I never forgot that. And I always wanted that man to coach my kids. And that's a true story. So that was about, if I'm doing the math right in my head, 13, 13 years later? I played 11 years. 11 years, okay. It was uh, uh, 11 years. And in that, in that 12th year, that's when he came to me and said that. I was still the first year coach. I hadn't even been coach of the year yet. He said that to me. I was just a coach to, to, uh, uh, for his season, you know, to correct uh, the direction of the team. Mm-hmm. Got to put something. Got it. Got it. Up. Yeah. Um, but I, he said, I can see we have more harmony. Well, I couldn't believe. I thought Earl was a very harmonious, good person. I, 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 I could see no reason for firing Earl. But that's the nature. Again, going back to the subtleties of the games that we're involved in. I don't know what was said in the back room. You know, I wasn't Hamilton. I wasn't in the room. Let's see. Yeah, you weren't in the room where it happens. But here's here's what uh, stands out to me in you telling that story is when someone sees your greatness before you do, mm. how you can rise to that level mm. to meet them. You know, and that's what we all need. Someone who sees us, our potential and what we can be you know, based on little hints, if you will, little subtleties in our character and our work ethic and in our head and how we show up and play the game and help us helps us to rise to that level by letting us know the gifts they see in us. Yes. And and that's always been important in my life because I never see it. <laughs> it's hard for me to see, but when I have a coach or a mentor or someone see it in me. Part of me says, well, I don't want to let them down. You know, I'm going to rise up to where they see is possible for me. And then when you wrote this book and you did your research for the book, tell me what surprised you. I think the biggest surprise for me with the book, <clears throat> as, I did, as I did the research, it was the profundity of the players. What players put into the game and what players, and I use, I would use two people as models. I'm actually three. Uh, I would use Wilt Chamberlain as a model because he was deemed a colossus. Bill Russell was deemed a colossus. But a guy named Oscar Robertson who became one of the best basketball players ever and is, was the guy that showed me so much in terms of character. And it, when I went back and I operated, I said, this is the guy 
this is the gentleman talking about seeing that said, we are super talented people. You people as owners are making a lot of money. We should be sharing in that because we are the show. We deem ourselves as important too and having value. And so you're going to have to pay us for that. And he started the NBA Players Association. He gave one of the most profound talks to business owners, team owners I've ever heard. I know because I was in the room when it happened. And I was so sitting- Then you were a Hamilton moment at that point. <laughs> off of his, I remember I was sitting off his right shoulder, watching the owners shaking their heads, saying, this is a very profound presentation and we have to listen to these gentlemen. Wow. Just and wow. that was in 1966. I can give you the date. And we had our certified players association in 1970 because of wow. Oscar and that was, that's, that was like the most powerful. So that was an eye-opening moment to you as you were writing the book. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. So where can folks get this book? Uh, I, uh, let me see, because my wife listed out in my brain. You can okay. get it on Amazon. <laughs> okay. Barnes and Noble. Mm -hmm. uh, you can order it online with Walmart, and you can order online, I believe, as Target. with Target. With so, Target. Okay. With, yeah, yeah. But it's on Amazon, the NBA in black and white. Get your copy. There's some more fascinating stories from Ray Scott in there, and Sir, it's truly been a pleasure having you a guest on the show. I could talk to you all day, all night. I'm in Germany right now, so it's night right now about these fascinating stories and compare them with stories my dad had during that time and my basketball playing family had. And it's just been such a pleasure. I appreciate you so much. And it's really an honor to meet a legend such as yourself. And give your best to my dad, please. Uh, as a gentleman that has reached a beautiful age of 90, I pray that he does well and he continues to enjoy uh, his trip through this life that we have. I certainly will. I certainly will. And I want to thank our listeners as well for really making the choice to listen to our show today. Hopefully you learned something today that'll help you get clear on what matters most to you and how you can have a greater impact in the world as well. And I hope you'll find the time to join us again next week. Um, and if you like the show, please subscribe and share the show with your family and friends. Now, I always love to leave everybody with a quote. This one is from Marcel Proust about time. And he says, time, which changes people does not alter the image we have of them. Hmm, that can be deep. So thank you again for joining us. And until next time, bye for now. Thanks for listening to What's Important Now, making time for what matters most with Eva Medelec. We hope we've been able to inspire you with today's show to take control of your own life and focus on the win. What's important now? Until we talk again, have a beautiful week.